0: Welcome to Ride Every Stride, Episode 4.
1: Welcome to Ride Every Stride with Van Hargis. This is a podcast about horsemanship and more. Our goal is to educate, motivate, inspire, and entertain you through an exploration of everything horsemanship, and the intersection of horsemanship and humanship. My name is Laura McClellan, and I'm your co-host on Ride Every Stride, and I'm here today with Master Horseman Van Hargis. Hey, Van.
0: Hey there, Miss Laura. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Good. You ready to go?
0: Absolutely. Let's rock and roll with this thing.
1: So we've been going a couple of episodes, trying to lay a foundation for the things you want to talk about in the episodes to come. And we started out talking about the what you call the ABCs of horsemanship, right. the absolute basic criteria. Let me see if I can get these. Okay. Forward movement. Yep. The control of forward movement. Yes. And we've talked about those two in the last two episodes. And now we're going to talk about the third one, which is the... Stopping.
0: The stopping of forward movement. That's
1: right. So what do you want to tell us about that?
0: Well, the most important thing about stopping a forward movement is that it is the last criteria. And yet so many times, Larve, people want to rely on stopping as their first and foremost, their primary. And the reason why is because they get a little bit concerned that something goes wrong with my horse. How how am I going to get him stopped? Well, to me, that's not nearly as important as the first two, getting him to go forward and then be able to control that forward movement. The reason it's stopping is, I guess, a big concern to people is that they just want to make sure that if something goes wrong, they want to shut that thing down. They want to stop that horse and get back to safety.
1: Because, well, they're afraid of the horse running away with them. Sure. Because, you know,
0: bad things could happen. (laughs) Bad things could happen. (laughs) But the reality is, is that if we do all of our other stuff, in other words, we take care of the fear issues and all the things that could potentially cause a horse to bolt or run away or whatever the case may be then the stopping thing is just nothing. It's just nothing really to, to be that concerned about. What I'm most concerned about is understanding to get the horse to go forward and then controlling them to go forward. And then if we kind of buy into one little concept that I teach all the time is that we make a horse go. I guarantee you, if we could take people out to, their, to where their horses are right now, then unless there's something pretty exciting happening or the horses are really, really feeling good, I'd really doubt if all the horses out there are running right now.
1: And yet we've talked about this before because there is a sense that we ha- sometimes have that, you know, we get on a horse and I'll admit this. I've got horses that I feel like they want to take off as soon as I get on board. So you're saying that my horse doesn't really want to take off.
0: Doesn't really want to. He. Might, and, and we have to look at it this way. And again, this is a very, very fundamental level from where horses really are. You've got a great big giant animal with a little bitty tiny stomach. So... <laughs> Thank God, because that's what makes them so easy to train, you know, because they've got all of this muscle and body and everything else, but only a little bitty tiny fuel tank. So as a result, in their deepest sense of survival, they want to conserve as much energy as they possibly can. So the idea that you getting on his back and now all of a sudden he quote unquote wants to go, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. If you think he wants to go, it's because he feels that anxiety, he feels that nervousness, he feels that anxiousness in you, and he wants to escape that. That's the Mm fight-or-flight syndrome with horses. So if we get up there and we just totally relax and the horse feels that, there's no threat, there's no worry given to him through you to him, then there's no incentive then for him to want to run. So the only reason he's doing it is because he feels as if there's something there that's a threat or he feels that's what you want him to do. Either way, that puts the burden on us, doesn't it? Just Mm -hmm. to relax. And then teach the horse, if you will, that the only reason he needs to move his feet is because we're going to encourage him or make him move his feet, which goes right back to what I've said before, which is, I like to teach the horses, I'm going to make you go and I'm going to let you woe. Mm -hmm. So I need you to, to learn how, not just to go forward, but learn how to go forward, which is the whole premise of the first two episodes of this series, which is, forward movement, just obtain that in the beginning in any way possible. I don't care if he's walking, trotting, or loping. As long as he's going forward, we're winning. Then the second thing, though, to make it a little bit more pleasing to us, maybe he should go at the pace we want him to go and go the direction we want him to go. Therefore, we have the control of the forward movement. But now that he's moving forward, now's the time that he he understands that if if we're making him go, then all we've got to do, and this is very, very important, all we've got to do to stop him is to quit making him go. You see? Now, that doesn't mean that when we quit making go, he's going to do that long, beautiful 30-foot reining horse slide that people see on TV and that sort of thing. That's not going to happen. That's enhancing it. That's making it even better. That's more speed with less traction. That's the more of a trained, refined version of what, what I'm talking about, which is just simply stopping him by not making him go.
1: Okay. And so how does that translate into what I need to be doing in the saddle? Right. Or well, if you remember no. on,
0: a, on a previous episode, we talked about the control of forward movement, and part of that was establishing a rhythm, getting that rhythm, understanding. Let's even go back to a much earlier previous episode where we are talking about the walk or the trot. And if we are truly in rhythm with our horse, in other words, we're the ones that's established that rhythm. Our body is our foot on the gas pedal. That now the horse understands that he's going because we're kind of pressing him to go forward. We're creating a rhythm. What that means to us is is that we, as we establish that rhythm, the horse picks up on that rhythm, and now we're working in unison to maintain that rhythm. Then my first step to getting a horse to stop is to simply stop the rhythm. Stop making him go. Just quit the rhythm altogether. You know, those of you who listen to my riding lessons or listen to my clinics, I'll say, just sit up there like a big old sack of taters, Just quit helping the horse. Don't help him move forward. Just relax. Over time, the horse will realize, well, wait a minute. If you're not going to make me go, I think I'm just going to stop. Well, isn't that what we want? So what we want to do first and foremost is just quit making him go. Just melt in the saddle and just quit pushing him to go forward. Now, there's also what I call the three steps to stopping, which is number one, what we just talked about, stop making him go. The second one, I might just use that magic word. Lord knows if you just say that magic word, every horse on the planet just stops immediately. And that magic word is, whoa, whoa, that's right. But woe is just a verbal command that we're going to give a horse to kind of reinforce what our bodies already previously communicated to him. It's not a bad word to teach. And I'll go into much greater detail on that later when we talk about how to make that woe even bigger and even stronger and more dynamic, more enhanced, more refined. Because in my world, in the performance world, I teach horses that woe doesn't mean stop. Woe means back up. And I'll go into that much later. But woe is the second step. Is it first one, again, is stop riding stop making him go. Second one, I want to reinforce the word woe. If both of those work, I don't even have to do the third. But if the third doesn't work, that's when I begin to pick up on the bridle. So the third step is we support with our hands, reins, and of course the bit. But the third one is not any good if we don't first put in the first two. So we have to apply the stopping of making him go, the word woe, and then lastly, the supporting of our hands. In other words, start pulling and drawing on those reins until the horse finally stops his feet. But to me, it's got to be in that sequence. What I've seen so many times is that people will still be riding. They're still pushing with their body, still on the accelerator, so to speak, to still make that horse go. And then in their mind, they're saying, okay, I'm ready for him to stop now. But yet their rhythm is still pushing, and now they're pulling on the bit, And that makes the horses very uncomfortable because it's almost like if you're driving a vehicle, it's like pressing on the gas and then trying to press the brake harder to make the car stop. So if we think about the sequence that we do on our cars, is what do we do? We take our foot off the gas, and then we press the brake. And we get a much more efficient, quicker, more responsive stop. The same thing applies when riding a horse. So the first thing we want to do to get him to stop is just quit making him go. In other words, take our body off the accelerator. Take our body out of that rhythm. And once our body goes to a neutral rhythm, or what I call a relaxed posture, then that's step number one. Almost always the horses will begin to transition slower and eventually come to a stop. But then if we enhance the word woe, now we've kind of affirmed it to the horse. We've kind of made a confirmation because a horse might just feel you riding and all of a sudden stop and go, hey, was that you just stopping riding? Therefore, when you say woe, he's like, oh, yep, that was it. I got it right. And then the last one, of course, is that final signal, that physical signal to him that we're pulling on the bit. But you'd be really surprised, Larry, how many times I ride horses. And sometimes even the very first ride that, I'll get in their mind from the groundwork and then eventually I get into the saddle. That rhythm gets rhythm. And how many times I ride that horse for the very first time and never pick up on the reins and they stop when I simply just quit making them go. So that's the thing that I want people to realize is that your horse doesn't really want to. He wants to conserve his energy, doesn't really want to be going. Therefore, when we ask him to stop by simply just stopping the rhythm, we're actually doing something that he wants to do, which is stop and conserve his energy. Now, here's the thing that always comes into place, and I'm not going to pick on any particular gender or any particular, or not gender, but any particular discipline, but I've given this presentation literally hundreds of times all over the country, and inevitably, there's going to be a handful of folks in the crowd that are going to say to me, oh, but my horse just loves to go. She just loves to run, and I just, eventually, I just made her into a barrel horse so that she, just, so she can just run and run and run, and to me, barrel horses are great athletes, The only reason that they really want to run that we think that they do is because that's what they've, number one, been trained to do, and we tend to pressure them into doing so. Therefore, when we get on their back, of course, they think they're supposed to run, and then our misconception is is that the horse loves to. But in reality, the barrel horse is the same as any other horse. He's got a great big body, a little bitty stomach. So everything he wants to do is to be very, very efficient. So if we just kind of get it in our mind that he doesn't really want to be doing those things, he's doing it just merely because we ask him, because we've encouraged him to go, and he's encouraged him to go that fast, that always that very first step to get that horse to stop is just to quit making him go.
1: I keep thinking that presupposes that people are doing what you've said in the previous episodes about getting the forward movement and controlling the forward movement. And they actually are riding actively and not just sort of flopping around in the saddle Exactly. And, you know.
0: Yeah, because you're you're exactly right. Because when we are riding actively, in other words, we are riding every stride, I say that to people all the time, is that when you ride every stride, that means something to your horse. And it should mean something to you, because it definitely means something to your horse, unless over time we inadvertently train him to ignore us. Therefore, when that happens, we're left with only one means of communication. And that's the bit to get him to stop. Uh And that to me is very, very sad. That's why, you know, I'm amazed at how many bits are on a wall when you go to a tack store. And, you know, and as a a friend of mine, John Lyons said a long time ago, Hey, Van, you know why there's so many bits? No, John, why? Because none of them work, (laughs) which is true. I mean, and I'm always amazed at how many people will go past my tack room back at the ranch And it's amazing. They think that I've probably got this whole wall full of all these special trick bits to get my horses to do all the really cool things that they see my horses do. And the look of disappointment on their face when they look in there and they realize that there's just a wall full of really simple things. There's no special bit out there. And I tell people all the time, I really don't care what you ride your horse with. It's not about the bit. It's about the communication with the bit. And there's
1: there's not a magic bit. that There's not. No.
0: And, you know, and the thing is, I know there's, you know, it'd be really easy if there was, but I've yet to see a bit that had an IQ (laughs) and, you know, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've never seen a bit that had a bigger IQ than I did (laughs) close, but not quite. But, you know, I'm going to share a little story to you about the aid or the reliance of tools. Several years ago, I was doing a cult starting thing up in Topeka, Kansas. And I know you've heard this story a hundred times, Laura, but I was doing a cult starting thing up there in Topeka. And I'm not a real big gimmicky person when it comes to my tools. Don't get me wrong. I sell the halters and I sell the lead ropes and I sell all the other stuff that I think makes horse training easier, easier for us. But first and foremost, we have to realize that those are just tools. It doesn't do us a lick of good to have those tools if we don't know how to use them, if we don't understand why we're using them and how we can use those to enhance our communication with a horse. If we don't understand the communication on a fundamental level, those tools mean nothing to us. So anyway, I'm in the round pen up in Topeka, and I will generally start a horse with whatever people lead him in the arena with. And you know those everyday run-of-the-mill Nylon strap halters—I don't even know what their real thing is—but they're just nylon halters, and they got buckles and things all over them. That's what they happen to bring this horse in. And even though I sell halters and I sell lead ropes, you would think that I, the first thing I would do is go in there and change that. Oh, you got to have this magic halter. You got to have the Van Hargis halter to get this horse trained. But no, rather than doing that, I just start with a horse whatever they've got because I don't want people to think that my stuff's—that's you know, not the magic. Yeah, it's not pill. something magic. Yeah, it's not the magic pill. So I'm getting ready to start this horse, and I realized the halter that they did bring him in in was just really in shambles. I I thought, man, if I pull on this thing, it's liable to break. So as I'm introducing myself to the audience and kind of getting started, without even thinking about it, I just reach over and take off the halter that's on him and chunk it to the side. And I grab another halter, and I get ready to put it on him. And a lady on the front row that day said, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Mr. Hargis, is that one of those training halters? And I just thought to myself, oh my goodness. So I turned to look at the audience and said, how many people in here think this is a training halter? And what this was of was just an everyday run-of-the-mill, I call them cowboy halters, but an everyday run-of-the-mill cowboy halter, which is a very popular rope halter that we see so many of us use today. I said, no, ma'am, it's, it's not a training halter. But how many of you in the audience think that this is a training halter? And I was amazed. I'm going to say probably 85 to 90% of the people raised their hand that they thought that was some sort of training halter. And I even asked, how many of you think that these knots that are on here are tied in strategic locations to put pressure on certain pressure points for the horse's face so that they'll respond better? And again, a very high percentage of the audience raised their hand. And again, I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> because then I told him, well, these knots are tied where they are not to make the training better not to apply pressure to certain pressure points. These knots are tied here just simply to help the halter fit the horse. And stay on him and stay on the right place. It has nothing to do with training and applying pressure to certain pressure points to get the horse to respond more. So I thought to myself, I'm going to better educate him. So I began to tell him the history of the cowboy halter and how the old cowboys used to take an old lariat rope and just cut it into pieces and make things from that lariat rope so that they could get the biggest bang for their buck with their halters or with their ropes and just try to get as much use out of it as possible. And then to prove my point even more, the lady had a young boy sitting beside her. I said, excuse me, is this your son or grandson or whatever? Oh, that's my grandson. Well, I got the young boy. If you don't mind, there's a John Deere dealer way down the road down there, down this thing. If you don't mind, could you get you to run down there to that other aisle and ask that John Deere guy if he could let you have about 22 foot of haystring? So the kid comes running back with his haystring. And Laura did the entire cult starting presentation with me even getting on the horse for the first time with nothing on him other than just this haystring. And I rode him around and did everything with him. And it was amazing because the horse did everything I'd want him to do. But it was just a haystring. My point was, it's not about the tools. It's about your timing, your understanding, your communication and what you're conveying to the animal. And trying to make that communication is easy on the horse to understand. Now, granted, you know, using the proper tools makes that easier. The burden is on us in the beginning to know what it is we want and how to communicate that. And then as a result, your tool becomes less and less important. And I can't think of a better example of that than when I'm talking about bits. Bits need to be simple. The worst thing that I think the human can do when we're riding a horse is to assume that the bit is going to stop them. The bit is going to control them. Because without the proper communication, that bit is nothing more than just an annoyance. And even to a point to where that bit can annoy the horse enough that he's more concerned about the pain being inflicted on him by the bit than he is about responding to that bit, about what it is that you're communicating to him.
1: And I'd like you to talk more about that because, and I don't know that this is the topic for this, but I mean, I have heard people say with a horse that's very strong-willed and wants to take off or whatever. Okay, well, go get me this other bit. Get me this bigger bit. Or, I, you know, I'm not an expert on bits. And you're saying that that's not the answer. No. Or that's not always the answer. That's never the answer. What It's, you
0: know. a, it's the communication more so than anything. That communication has got to be better. Now, certain bits might enhance what the horse already knows. It might refine the communication even more so. But I look at it like this. It's as if you could imagine trying to speak a language to a horse. For example, let's say that you and I are communicating. And for example, I know you're a French student in college, but if you were talking to me in French and I didn't have a clue what you were saying.
1: Well, I just say it louder. Yeah,
0: exactly. If So would it do you good then just to yell it at me? I mean, I still don't understand it. So you can get as loud as you want to. That's the same way I feel about the bit. So if the horse doesn't understand the language, doesn't understand that when you pull on that bit that you're wanting him to stop, But if he doesn't understand that, is it going to do you any good to take that bit out and go to the tack room and get a bigger bit? You're sending the same signal, but now you're doing it louder. Mm. And that, to me, is just going to get more and more frustrating for the horse, and not to mention painful in some cases. As a result, it's going to hurt your security. You're not going to feel as confident. And before you know it, people are blaming the horse. Ah, this old horse, he might be as good as gold, but he just won't stop. Baloney. If, does that mean he's still running? I bet he stops to eat at lunchtime. You know, <laughs> the reality is, yes, he'll stop. But the only reason he's not is because he just doesn't understand that's what you want him to do. So we have to put the burden back on us to think more consciously about our riding. Think more conscientiously about the communication that our body and our mind is sending, sending to the horse, so that now the bit and all the other tools out there are secondary forms of communication and not primary.
1: Okay, so if the answer isn't about the bits first, we've still got a little bit more time, and I want to make sure we don't spend all the time focusing on don't do this. So go back and review what it is if we're trying to stop that forward movement. Talk us through that again a little bit.
0: You betcha. First of all, we have to establish the forward movement, don't we? So the first thing we want to do is we want the horse to understand not that he's just moving forward, not that he's just walking, not that he's just trotting, but understand why he's doing that. And why is the horse doing it? He's doing it because we've established a rhythm. We've established, in other words, we're making him do it. We're asking him and requiring him, if you will, to work with us, to dance with us and to move at the rhythm that we've established. And then with enough time to not just establish that rhythm, but to maintain that rhythm. And that's very important. That's what we call riding. You're actually riding the horse to the point where you're establishing and maintaining the rhythm. And I really don't care if it's a walk, trot, or a lope. Whatever your rhythm is, just make sure the horse understands that you're establishing that and and you're the one that's maintaining that. You're the one that's kind of setting the pace. The horse is going to be quite willing in time. They're going to be quite willing to work with you. Horses by nature are animals that do not like resistance. They do not like the stresses that resistance brings to them. So they love for everything to be very rhythmic. They love for everything to be very stress free. They love for everything to be very resistant free. And they always seek that out. So if we then establish that rhythm in the horses and we establish them that there's peace, if you will, within that certain rhythm, within that stride, that's what the horse is going to want. At the same time, what the horse really wants, though, is to not do that at all. So we have to ask ourselves, is it within our reason then for us to establish that rhythm for the horse? And if it is, then we want to establish that. Therefore, the first step, again, to getting him to stop is just to simply stop the rhythm, just to melt in the saddle. To help reinforce that more, we can always use the woe word, woe. And then lastly, of course, is we support with our hands. When I say support with your hands, usually in our hands we have the reins, and the reins are attached to a bit or loping hackamore, whatever it is that we're having to be using on our horses. But our hands are attached to that, therefore we support with those. And when I say support, I don't mean pull, jerk, you yank. know, yank on those darn horses. What I mean is just simply support. And once the brake is applied, we apply the brake as hard as necessary to get the horse to eventually stop his feet. But again, I have to emphasize the first cue for that stop is to simply quit making him go. Stop the rhythm. Your first job is to establish it. Give the horse a reason to understand the only reason he's moving his feet is because you're making him. And once he understands that the only reason he's moving forward is because you're making him, it makes the stopping of him so much better. And again, I love to use analogies with, with vehicles, but the same thing applies with vehicles is that when we get in the vehicle, the only reason it's going to go is because we put it in drive and we're pressing on the gas. Then as a result of that, the way to get it to stop is, number one, just quit pressing on the gas. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, we'll immediately feel a change in the vehicle. And oftentimes we do the same thing with our horses. We'll feel a change in the horse. Now, if we need a faster stop than what the horse is going to give us or a faster stop than what the car is going to coast to, that's when we can begin to apply the brake but I have to establish the fact that people's minds though, that it can be done oftentimes in an unbelievably responsive manner simply by just stop making him go.
1: The one thing I want for you to take just a minute to talk about is what you were just alluding to with the stopping and the difference between support and the yanking, because certainly on TV, you know, you see the folks galloping up on a horse and then yanking back on the, on the reins and pulling. And I've watched you and and your hands seem very active, but subtly active. Talk a little bit about what's the difference between the way you handle the reins versus, you know, yanking back, what that does to the horse. And, you know, one may be better than the other, or more effective.
0: One thing I'd like for the listeners to consider is, um, impact versus just the Pull, yeah. And a lot of times when I see people, they'll they'll have their reins nice and slack, which may be a good thing. When I say slack, it depending on what discipline you're in, you know, Western riding, for example, we tend to ride with our what we call a droop in our reins. English riding, we're always riding in light contact. Either way, we're training our horses to ride into the bit, so to speak. But there's just a little bit different feel about that. How we get a Western horse to be a little bit more uh, maybe softer in the bridle, to where they're still staying on the bridle with just the the weight of the rein establishing that feel, whereas in English, it's just a little bit more contact with that. But what really bothers me is when I see someone, especially more so in the Western discipline, where those reins are drooped, and then they decide that the rider wants to stop, then the rider will tend to pull on those reins very quickly. And as a result, there's an impact. That slack comes out of those bits or out of the reins, and there's an impact to that horse's mouth and lower jaw. And that, to me, I, I can't imagine anything being tougher and harder on a horse than that. Number one, they don't know what's coming. And number two, this that strong impact in the horse's mouth. It'd almost be like having a, an extremely rough-handed dentist in there just plowing around in your mouth very quickly without any warning with some very tough metal tools in your mouth. I, mean, I can't think of a single human that would want that from a dentist. So why would we want to have that same metal thing flopping around in a horse's mouth at our hand? I don't know. So I, I tell people I don't care how hard you pull on him. if That's what it takes to get the horse to stop, whatever the case may be. Just don't do it with any kind of impact. And, you know, and I do a demonstration a lot of times at our clinics where I'll I'll walk up to someone and I might take you, for example, Laura, as as a volunteer. So, Laura, come up here and stand right beside me. And what I'll do is I'll put my fist against your shoulder and I'll just push. And I'm going to say, let's say I'm pushing with roughly 10 pounds of pressure. And then the next thing I'll do, I'll have you stand in the exact same spot. But this time, instead of just pushing on you, I'll hold my fist, so say six to eight inches away and I'll punch you. And I'm still not going to punch you very hard. And let's say again, by the time that punch hits you, it's still only roughly 10 pounds of pressure. But then I ask you, which one would you prefer? Would you rather be pushed or would you rather be punched? And I've yet to have anybody, no matter how many times I've done that, I've yet to have anybody say, oh, I'd rather be punched. Mm. So now I'm thinking, well, put that bit in the horse's mouth and think about the same thing. Make the contact first and then pull.
1: And so by make the contact, you mean you're picking up on the reins gradually? Absolutely. I mean, We're
0: picking up, because, especially gradually in my mind, because I want the horse to know that he's got from happen. the time that I begin to even think about stopping him, he's got from then until the time the bit makes contact, until the time I begin to pull on him to stop his feet. And once we do begin to utilize the bit as an aid to stop the horse, then they will begin to, oftentimes to pick up on that, If, as long as I'm very consistent, meaning that... I've had my, well, I train all my horses that they stop when I just quit riding. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, then I begin to pick up on the range. And that's a very slow process. So I, as I pick up, the weight and the feel of that rein changes in the horse's mouth until eventually, yes, the reins do make contact with a bit. And at that point, it's light contact. And then the contact gets a little heavier and a little heavier and a little heavier until eventually I get the stop that I want. And once I get that stop, I give an immediate release of that. So now the horse begins to realize that through that consistency on my part, hey, when those reins begin to move, I need to give some sort of response.
1: I know something's coming. Yeah, and so they know something's coming. As opposed to just having the bits slammed Suddenly into. Suddenly slammed yeah. in their face. Yeah.
0: And especially while we're still riding forward. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm going to have to emphasize again, those three steps to stopping is number one, quit riding, quit making him go. Number two, whoa. That's another pre-signal. It's another signal time that, hey, you felt me right. I quit riding. I want you to stop. And then lastly, support with the reins. And I use the word support very carefully. I want people to understand that it's never going to be an impact. I just want the horse to know that he's being supported to and through a stop.
1: Well, I think that's great. I think that's really useful information. I'm not sure everybody understands that, so I'm glad that you clarified that. I think if we're running out of time, so if folks have questions about this, they certainly, uh, I know you welcome those questions. There's a, a various ways that they can be in touch with you through the website at vanhargis.com. Uh, you can email questions or suggestions, uh, ideas for future episodes, because we're going to get more and more into other elements of good horsemanship. Um, you can email those questions to info at com, and we'll sure respond and address those questions in future episodes. You can also find us on Facebook. So look for Van Hargis Horsemanship on Facebook, like the page, leave a comment, introduce yourself. And certainly, if you visit the website, you see the calendar, you see that Van's going to be in your area, stop in and say hi and let us know that you're listening to the podcast and let us know if it's helpful to you.
0: Or, Laura, if they want us in their area we can certainly arrange that as well.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Send an email about that also to info at vanhargus.com And um, we can work with you on whether setting up a clinic in your area or any number of things to get Van in person. There's only so much you can do through an audio broadcast type thing. I think that's pretty much it. We will have more to come in episodes to come. Anything you want to say to the listeners before we wrap up?
0: Well, of course, Laura, I would like to say a big thank you. You know, this is uh, the podcast thing has been a project that's been coming about for some time now, and I'm extremely pleased to be able to do it. But, you know, we wouldn't do it and we couldn't do it if we didn't have the listeners. So a uh, deep thank you to everyone that's listening. And uh, and again, I do encourage you to participate by, by getting in contact with us in the, in the means that uh, Laura mentioned just a little while ago. So thank you so much to everybody. And until next time, remember, it's your trail, it's your journey, and it's your life. So ride ever stride.